You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin today by calling in the ancestors. So I call out to our ancestors, those who lived well and died well, those whose shoulders on which we stand. I call out to those ancestors who are ready, willing, and able to be true ancestral helping spirits. I call out to those who bring that which is good and true and beautiful into our lives and I call out in particular to those ancestors who as ancestors who have lived well and face the challenges of living in times of great change and transformation I call out for these ancestors in particular to be with us here today that we might come to understand what the time that we have chosen to be born in is calling out from us So I call out to these ancestors to be with us here today to gather around to hold us well and to help us to do what we are meant to do in this day. And I ask that each one of you listening reach down from your heart to your belly and your belly into the earth, all the way down through all the layers of the earth into the very heart and center and core of the earth. And let us send into the center of the earth our gratitude for life, our gratitude for this day. Our gratitude for the beauty in life, for the wonder and the awe of the miracle of life that we are all sharing. And we give thanks to the earth for the amazing diversity and magic in her dreaming of life that we are all sharing. And we draw the energy of the earth up, inviting into our own bodies the wisdom of manifestation. We call up this energy and ask to use it in this day for grounding, for belonging, for connection. For a sense of hearth and home and place in life and for the ability to reach out from that groundedness and that sense of place to reach out into the connection and interconnectedness of all things and to know in that way our oneness with all things. And with our sense of that oneness and our connection to the earth, let us reach up from our bellies to our hearts and our hearts to our minds and from our minds out through the sky out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos and reach all the way up to the highest power of the universe and by whatever name you know that power, name it and see your own reflection in it. And as we draw the energy of the sky down, let's call into our lives the energy of blessing and protection, the energy of generosity and benevolence and the devotion and excellence that comes from being inspired in life to do what we have come here to do. And so we call the energy of above down, the sky energies down through all the layers of the sky into our mind, into our heart, into our belly. And we ask the energies of the earth and sky to dance within us into the exact perfect balance for us here today. We draw in in this way the wisdom of the cosmos and the wisdom of manifestation together within ourselves. And in this place, in the center of all things, we invite the spirit of the heart to awaken, to open, to be clear and full and strong and to receive. And we ask the crucible of the heart to draw into itself to receive the fiery passions of the belly and the crystal clarity potential in the mind to come together in the heart and to merge in such a way where neither is destroyed and both give birth to the knowing of our own soul's true purpose. And may we find in our hearts the courage to live that purpose, to bring it into the world in some way. So we give thanks to the energy of the spirits gathered round, the heart in the center of it all. And we ask that what needs to be said be said here today and what needs to be heard be heard and that these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. And we give thanks. We give thanks to those of you that help to keep the show alive and on the air, that it is through your donations that we are able to do what needs to be done to pay for the technology that makes the shows free and available to anyone who has access online. 
All the shows are archived back to January of 2009 on the com site. You can access the archives there, and you can also click the support button there and leave any amount, large or small. Every single bit goes directly to keeping the show on the air. And so I give thanks to those of you who have donated this week. And we give thanks... <clears throat> For all of you who are taking action in the world to, to keep the show vital, to keep it alive, to send in questions, to talk about these things in your journey circles, to bring what you are learning on the shows into action in your life, I give thanks in this moment for all of these things. Thanks for Co-Creator Network for producing the show and um, giving us that offering to the show and I just give thanks for all the many things that keep us alive and well and happening and relevant so thank you all if you are moved by this show in any way even if you're moved into irritation consider doing something consider donating consider acting in some way through that motivation in your heart to help uh, to the show to grow so thank you all So our topic today is how do we view 2012 and our need for change, our profound need for change, our profound uh, change that's happening whether we want to change or not. How do we address being in this time? And to help us in this regard, our guest today is um, C. McCall Smith, Ph.D. So welcome, McCall. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, it's a delightful opportunity to be with you again, your open heart, your fast-moving, uh, inquisitive mind. I'm looking forward to it. So for those of you that don't know, McCall is an internationally recognized pioneer in the synthesis of Jungian psychology and shamanic healing. His most widely known book is Jung and Shamanism in Dialogue, Retrieving Soul, Retrieving the Sacred. McCall's teachings are heart-centered shamanism, offering skills that cultivate the daily expression of spirit and spirit helpers through the heart and the absolute core of our being and of life. McCall's training, apprenticeship programs, and the international heart-centered earth-honoring shamanic communities that have grown around his teachings are in French, Belgium, South Africa, and known uh, collectively as Crow's Nest International. For those of us here in this, in North America, we are lucky to be able to access Crow's Nest Center for Shamanic Studies, which is in Michigan. And this is where McCall and his students conduct um, USA-based workshops, retreats, and individual apprenticeship intensives. Um, he also has a private practice of psychology. And you can connect with him at admin at crowsnestshamanism.com. Uh, the website is www.crowsnestshamanism.com or cmichaelsmith.com. We are not live this week. I apologize for that, but life goes on. But if you have any questions about the topic, please feel free to email either one of us uh, <laughs> at christina at lastmaskcenter.org or mccall at admin at crowsnestshamanism.com. And we would be happy to respond and hope that our show does inspire questions here today. So welcome again. Thank you for joining us today and sharing your perspective about what is going on right now um, as we move into and um, focus on the this coming time of change. We've, I mean, anyone alive right now is living in a time of great change. However, I think most of us feel a particular acceleration towards this this point. So, what what is your sense overall? Of what's going on? Yeah, we're we're living in a time that's uh, a great transition between what the world we've known and our institutions and uh, belief systems, uh, and a world that's coming to be uh, for better or for worse. And uh, it's up to us to uh, make that uh, transition the way we want it to go. As I see it, there's no. Messiah that's going to come to save us. There's no avatar that's got all the answers that's going to descend from a galactic beam and show us the way to deal with all the disturbing trends that are going on globally. We have to do it ourselves, collectively, co-creatively. In in particular, um, people send me emails all the time and say, what's 
what's your take on 2012 on and on and on and you know I've just kind of waited to find someone that I I wanted to talk about not a, necessarily a particular people's prophecy I think it's more interesting that so many different peoples around the globe have prophecies that speak to this time that to me is more interesting than each individual prophecy itself but also my my perspective about any of this, any time in life, is that these times are great quickenings. And in a quickening, you know, you get shoved whatever direction you're pointing in. And so, <laughs> you know, my, my effort in all of this, at least for myself, just to speak in that, that, from that humble place of just myself, is to try each day to make sure if this were the day that I was to be quickened, that I'm pointing in the direction I want to be shoved by life. And so part of the reason that I, or the main reason actually, that I have um, invited McCall to share in this discussion with me, which we will do in two parts today, this week, and next week, is because I don't really want to listen to any solutions that are not both heart-centered and earth-honoring. Because my personal belief as a shamanic practitioner and as a scientist is that Anything other than that is simply folly. I mean, if we have learned nothing in the last 5,000 years, I would hope that it is that, that our only path forward must be, I don't know what the path forward is, but I know that it must be heart-centered and earth-honoring. And one of the biggest challenges that I have is that I can get people tracking with me in conversation until I get that whole love thing. And what's interesting to me is how many people check out at that point. So what what's up with that? Well, we we live in a civilization that's not uh, been uh, supportive of an open heart, but of a closed one, a defended heart, uh, protected against uh, harm. And uh, we have a worldview that we've inherited that's been forming for a couple thousand years, a little more than that, but made uh, uh, more harsh by the developments in philosophy and science of Descartes and Newton that gave us a materialistic, atomistic, mechanistic uh, cosmos that can uh, be controlled and manipulated for our personal gain and benefit and by our will. And this is a, basically a heart-closed philosophy of life. The, the world is out there and it's to be conquered, developed, opened up, mind uh, used for our own ends. And so uh, the cosmology supports a way of life that does not invite us to open the heart, to uh, mystically connect with nature, to see nature as inspirited and alive and having its own value beyond our own uh, uh, personal uh, sources of greed and uh, interest. Well, from a scientific perspective, though, this has always amazed me because you don't have to study that much in science to get, you know, the, the metaphor here. Okay, if I'm in a spaceship hurtling through space and I'm a human and I need air and food and water, and I need these things actually to be clean, it makes sense to me that that spaceship that provides all those things would be my utmost priority, the maintenance and the ongoing you know, good life of that little spaceship. And so it's always seemed so odd to me that people could not get the fact that we are on... <laughs> A spaceship hurtling through space that gives us our air and our water and our food and that they need to be clean because, you know, anyway, never mind. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. just always seemed amazing to me that that was such a hard concept for people to grasp, the concept yeah. of a closed system. Yeah, we were literally our spaceship. It was Buckminster Fuller that gave us that image. And what he said was, not only are we using up all the fuel – uh, we're not able to pack the trash and throw it out. We're, you know, so the spaceship is filling up with our trash. And, uh, and of course, this is uh, poisoning the planet, <laughs> basically. And uh, in the long run, we'll make it unlivable if we don't do something different. So, so we've sort of gotten ourselves to the, to the 
to the dynamics of the global crisis part of the show here. So um, would you be so kind here as to just sort of give us the, the, the rundown here of the dynamics that we are that we all must acknowledge are part of what is part of what is going on in our life. So yeah. what are the dynamics of the global crisis? Yeah, those dynamics or trends, uh, I think we all know them. They're uh, climactic changes that are becoming quite discernible in the changing of weather patterns and uh, the melting of the uh, ice caps. And uh, the best estimates are that if we stopped all greenhouse gas global globally, the, the emissions from exhaust, if we stopped them today, there were no more we would be into the 22nd century before the temperature of the planet stops rising. So uh, any action we take today, and it's important that we take action today, is going to be for uh, our great, 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 great grandchildren. And uh, for the planet to be uh, not a terrible place to live in at that time, we've got to make changes today. So there's an urgency to this. Um, Ecological damage, I mean, the, the unclean air, the unclear rivers. Uh, I've seen things in the Amazon that were just horrifying to see around uh, towns that uh, are somewhat modernized on the edges of it. Uh, the dumping of plastic and all kinds of waste straight into it. So it's in trouble. But this is a worldwide problem, the devastation of rainforests that are essentially uh, – benefit to us as our own lungs or as oxygen breathing creatures uh, and uh, just the sheer richness and diversity of life uh, there and all the indigenous uh, peoples and their societies all that is uh, threatened uh, there's the economic crisis uh, right now we have a world an international banking system crisis that is uh, so fragile that if all we need is uh, just one disaster to tip us into a Great Depression and see this thing collapse, one disaster, it, it could be a, a weather crisis, a tsunami, it could be some type of plague outbreak, it could be a strategically appointed terrorist attack. We don't need much. We're in a fragile state economically. And those are the facts. And the international banking system is a, a good boy club that's driven by greed. And uh, it shows no signs of uh, being able to change itself. Um, and then uh, I mentioned already the uh, the world all over the planet is materialistic, atomistic, greed-driven, and combined with capitalism and a kind of a survival of the fittest mentality, it's just hellishly exploitive of the planet. And that creating all kinds of uh, uh, political instability internationally. Uh, so we have uh, political instability is another trend with uh, always uh, threat of new developing nuclear powers and chemical warfare. And that's a very fragile state too. And we could go on and on, talk about healthcare systems and what have you. Uh, it's clear that we can't proceed in the future as we have done business in the past. So what are the perspective from some, um, I mean, that's part of what's going on, but another part of what's going on is there's some perspectives from some very amazing world thinkers that are, that are thinking, acting, engaging in the challenges of this time that we're in. So, so what are some of those, um, people and their thoughts that you feel are most important excuse me for us to connect with today and to understand yes okay that, that's a great question a wonderful question and there's there's uh, quite a few uh, people doing important work in this area and uh first i want to say uh ervin laszlo who's a, a philosopher of science a scientist uh uh, theoretician, uh, concert musician, uh, a two-time nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, author of 80 books. Uh, this is a very seminal human being that has enormous respect uh, around the planet. And uh, he was a member of the original Club of Rome. Uh, 
which uh, was uh, a kind of society that gathered to deal with uh, the global investment banking system and tried to put some ethical limits on it. And it completely failed by the end of the 1970s. Uh, Laszlo and the former of the Club of Rome said, okay, we had 10 years of it. We've got all these beautiful policies and nobody's done anything about them. We need another club. And Laszlo said, yes, we need a club of take action is what we need. And so he formed the Club of Budapest, which is now filled with wonderful people, uh, the Dalai Lama, other Nobel Prize winning scientists, uh, shamans even. Uh, Don Miguel Ruiz is a part of that. It's a, it's a great uh, uh, community of uh, thinkers, healers, scholars, civic planners, uh, enlightened beings. And uh, they are taking on uh, this whole problem of the need for a global shift. And they've formed an organization called Global Shift Network. And you can find this on the internet, globalshift.com. And it's a vast resource uh, of uh, articles, videos, talks, and principles on how to create a global shift that will really turn our way of life, uh, transform it into a, a heart-open and earth-honoring way of life. And uh, at, this, at this stage of the game, they don't have a lot of concrete answers. What they developed so far are important strategies and principles and in some education programs, including they have uh, sponsored the Giordano Bruno University in Italy. It's a multi-language university without walls. Uh, it's fully accredited. And uh, the basis of their academic philosophy is uh, towards a hard, open and earth-honoring way of life. And they have degrees in international relations. Uh, they have degrees in business degrees in psychology and art, in art history, degrees in ecology, bachelor's and master's level. Uh, and uh, they are getting ready to uh, set up PhD programs. Uh, Laszlo himself is chancellor of the university. Uh, the, the tuition is about $340 a course, which is, if you know anything about tuition today in America, uh, this is very cheap. Uh, I recall paying tuition at University of Chicago uh, 25 years ago at about $4,000 a course. What it is today, I have no idea. But I know tuition is expensive. And this university is dedicated to providing this as cheaply as possible. So, uh, And that's a resource I want to mention is Giordano Bruno University. If you care about this planet and you're thinking about getting an education, a degree, uh, in one of these areas, please check out their website, uh, GiordanoBrunoUniversity.com, and look at their programs. It sounds so like you would certainly be able to um, be involved in education in a way that is not 15 years behind what's actually going on, which can happen to people in education. They spend yeah. their whole time studying what's already done. Right. In fact, they, they have an introductory course. I may even take this course because it looks so interesting. It's a prerequisite and it takes three months online to do it. But there's three components and it's uh, world one is the first component. And in there you study uh, how we came to be the way we are as a civilization. Uh, what were the philosophies, the ideas, the economic and political developments? And then world two is you look at, okay, what are the problems in today's world that need addressing? And then in uh, world three, you look at, okay, what creative uh, energies and knowledge and skills can I bring to doing something about what's needed in today's world? Now, this is the basic basis uh, philosophically for the academic prob programs, whether you're doing it in art, uh, psychology, music, music uh, history, uh, uh, international relations, uh, that's the underlying backbone philosophy. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it does sound exciting. So so what are some of the things that um, Laszlo is, is saying? that we we need to pay attention to or that, I mean, is there a way to put it into kind of a nutshell of the things that we must focus on today? 
Yes. He, uh, he and the uh, Club of Budapest have laid out some principles. Uh, let's see if I can find them. Uh, I'll just have to try to remember them. But these uh, – oh, here it is. Uh, the principles on the website uh, are called Six Fears of Activity for a world shift uh, network. And he said the, the first one concerns developing uh, a, a cosmology in which we understand the unity of humanity and nature, in which spirit is part of nature, not something separate from it. And uh, all these members of the Club of Budapest feel this is the foundational thing. We need a shift in worldview first. Then, uh, second, we need a global subsistence economy. And insofar as I understand that, this is taking our uh, grocery manufacturing away from uh, multinational corporations and uh, super chains and localizing it more. And uh, instead of, uh, I mean, you, you may eat bananas from uh, who knows where, uh, Ecuador, uh, South Africa. You may eat rice from China or some other place. Uh, your, the meat you eat, who knows where it comes from. But basically, we have, uh, I think, at considerable cost, foods from all over the world uh, managed by these uh, transnational corporations who can do things to our food that we have no control over. And so one way is to return control on a grassroots way to the communities and encourage communities to develop their own uh, farming their own food markets and this sort of thing. This seems to be something they feel is very important as part of the global subsistence economy. Their third principle is called salutogenesis. And uh, the, the word salut in French, it's just, uh, it's like a hello, but what it really means is health to you. And the English word hello means the same thing. It comes from the Middle English helan uh, and the German heil. So this means uh, health or wholeness. So it's a, uh, a philosophy of uh, healthcare that's based on how do we get well as opposed to uh, why are we sick or, or what's making us sick. And it's not to replace that earlier philosophy. That's important. Why do we get sick and what can we do about it? But uh, how can we promote uh, wellness on the planet? And uh, the fourth one is the uh, global wisdom culture. And... Uh, you might say that's what you have with uh, the Club of Budapest is a, a group of wise people that are trying to steer the planet. But we need much more of that input. And uh, we need these people in uh, uh, national and international diplomacy, for example. Uh, and uh, we need the governments taking them seriously. Uh, then uh, the fifth one is a participative civil society. And what this really means is uh, the old nation-state system that's hierarchical and has problems uh, requiring uh, warfare sometimes and diplomacy to dissolve those wars um, is uh, something that's run by a few people at the top of a hierarchical chain. And even in a local government like the United States or, or France or Germany uh, – the information flow from the people to the top and their concerns is a very long journey. And there tends to be a strangulation or a congestion as uh, things move towards the top of the hierarchical chain. And when they finally get deliberated on by whoever's at top and then pass back down to the local people who are concerned, years and decades can pass before action is taken. So it's a very slow, clunky system. And the answer is not to improve that system, but to criticize it and actually kind of bring it down in a transition to a kind of a non-hierarchical network kind of governmental system in which there are, are many centers of uh, power that uh, are moved by grassroots people as well as uh, people that the, the grassroots uh, civil society people put in positions of power that are not hierarchical. And uh, these uh, systems can intercommunicate uh, with each other and make changes, and you don't have this long climb up a ladder and then back down with political process. So participative 
civil society. And the sixth one is uh, planetary peace and freedom, which they say is not possible unless uh, the first six of uh, the first five spheres are uh, satisfied. So planetary peace and freedom is not really uh, uh, a, a sustainable option uh, until these other five uh, areas are adequately addressed. So it is that, perhaps the result of the others. Yes, in yeah. part, in part. Yeah. But it, it's also its own thing that requires the right kind of people. But the right kind of people mean uh, the, the civilians, you and me, world, mm-hmm. world citizens, planetary citizens taking action and, and really helping to lead and helping to lead the leaders, whoever is, is put at the nodules of power, uh, informing them, communicating with them and uh, uh, critiquing the system, monitoring the system. If you have uh, a network that's like a, the network of neurons in your brain or the uh, rhizome of certain uh, root plants, you can unhook and rehook the nodules in different ways. And you can reach any nodule from any point you enter the system. But a hierarchy uh, prevents that sort of communication yeah. with the people. And I'm indebted to this uh, for my friend Julian uh, Gordon, who uh, has really uh, informed me about this social network theory and what this means and what the possibilities are. Well, in a really very, very small scale, um, one of the things I've been working with with my student community in terms of manifesting a vision of a new community um, that wasn't just us as we were collected, but an actual community that professed that was able to live a certain set of values, which is kind of what this is about is how do we, how do we manifest a new, uh, structure of community. And it's been really eye opening for us to realize even in, with a handful of, you know, well-minded, you know, good hearted people, well-minded people with working with spirit that we still have a tendency a huge tendency to simply create a new version of the old pattern that that it takes an actual transformative process to become the people who can not only manifest the new vision but to live in it and that and that the transformation of the people and the manifestation of the new vision have to go hand in hand and it just sounds to me like in this work that you've just described there is a a deep understanding of that fact that um, if we don't do this at a minimum, we will simply create a new version of the old pattern, which will not solve any of the problems that we really need to face. So it's, it's beautiful. It's challenging. I think there's a lot of dory and it's not, you know, it's just, it's just a different version of the same pattern and we need to not spend our energy doing that. We need to understand what does it really take to co-create something that is actually going to be qualitatively different. Yes, um, that's right. Uh, well, you just said a whole lot, and let's let's take it in pieces if we can. First, I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention a couple other sources uh, mm-hmm. uh, behind this whole uh, what can we do uh, uh, question. Uh, one is uh, Carl Jung, or C.G. Jung, who was a great master of the psyche, uh, in our time, and it's extraordinary heights and depths he opened up for us. And he taught us to look inward and downward and to trust the inner telos or purpose of the psyche that moves us towards wholeness and personal evolution. Uh, His psychology was a bit uh, oriented towards the past and getting us in line with our ancestry, getting our psyche back, our, our, our minds back on its phylogenetic evolutionary foundations. And uh, this is a seminal source. But then I think of Teilhard de Chardin, the French paleontologist, who was also a priest. And he was a great prophet of the planetary and human evolution that gave us uh, kind of the planetary context for the ev- our evolution as a species alongside other species. And uh, he predicted the, the development of the Internet and the kind of social networking that we're seeing happen today. And uh, the development of the newosphere, which is a kind of uh, global human consciousness that is forming now because of the Internet. 
and is making possible uh, for our consciousness, our consciousnesses, to co-create together and actually affect matter, affect the planet in ways that uh, can be good or not good. These two figures, uh, I feel, go together and have inspired a lot of what's happening now with this uh, global shift stuff and Renaissance Two. Uh, which is another organization that's doing something very similar, and you can go to their website, Renaissance Two, for resources on that. Uh, but from my standpoint, looking at this shamanically, if we think of healing as um, promoting wellness, as uh, reuniting parts of the psyche, as uh, uh, extending beyond the human to uh, uh, social healing and then planetary healing, uh, the healing of the damage we've done to nature. Um, it's clear to me that uh, we're not there and we need a new human. We need to evolve uh, a human that is hard open and that is uh, able to care for uh, the community, the polis, and is able to care and willing to care for uh, the nature and all the life around us. So we need a bigger concept of, of healing and healthcare than uh, what we've been carrying around in our civilization. And uh, I believe shamanism is a goldmine of resources, really, for developing these human potentialities that can allow us to become heart open and truly earth honoring. So that said, uh, as we look at this global situation, the crisis, what can we do uh, to co-create together uh, a better world? And that's, that's a big question. And, and uh, I do, there, do believe there are a number of things that we can, can do. And probably at the top of the list is forming, uh, again, what my friend uh, Julian Gordon calls uh, communities, affinity groups, collectivities organized around common causes, common interests, common ethical concerns, and so on. And we have the advantage now of uh, social networking like you have on Facebook and Twitter and uh, the Internet itself to uh, organize these groups and uh, to uh, form them, to co-create them. And I think of uh, uh, examples like Craigslist, for example, where if you're looking for a used bicycle, you can easily get on and find somebody that's got a used bicycle. In fact, you'll probably find several people in that way, pool their resources, pool their advertising. So we can form collectivities and affinity groups that actually have a lot of power to them. If we will use this technology and uh, this Internet system that is available for us, that is one way we can create communities that are beyond uh, the physical uh, neighborhood kind of uh, adjacent contact with each other. Uh, but then we need, we need the other type of community too. Go ahead. It sounds like you had a question. Well, I was also just going to say that many people don't recognize that one of the things that, that shamanism offers us because it allows us to function outside of space and time is it allows us to begin to think differently about those groups. So, for example, one of those groups with gathered around, you know, these groups gathered around an affinity to something that, you know, my students are from all over the United States. And so a group might need to do a fire ritual and they all need to do the same fire ritual, but now they're not at the workshop anymore. Now they're spread out all over. At one point in time, actually, we had a fire ritual that needed to happen and people were spread out literally all over the globe. There was someone on every continent for that particular fire ritual. And what they did was they just simply time synced up so that they were doing it in all of these different places at basically the same time. And it's another way of thinking about shamanic work. We, we, we tend, to, at least in America, we tend to think of it as when we get together, we do this. And when I'm on my own, I do this. Instead of thinking about when I'm on my own, I can still do this with you. <laughs> 
because I can I can sync up in time in different places. I can sync up in different places at different times. You know that that we're not so locked into that tracking of reality. And when we begin to think and practice that way and recognize that that works, then our sense of possibility and hopefulness opens up for the greater uh, transformational tasks ahead of us. I don't know. That's just. Yeah, I'm with you. This is social evolution. This is a form of social community that has never existed before, at least on this planet. So it's a new step forward, and it has political power. We can make changes through these kind of uh, networking social systems that involve the Internet. We can uh, grow in our power. Think of the Arab Spring a couple of years ago and all these um, uh, Arab-speaking countries that were uh, falling one after another because they had cell phones and could communicate the abuses and the outrage to the Internet, to Facebook, uh, thus increasing their own local support but also international support and making it hard for the repressive regimes to deny what was going on. Uh, And uh, so they were bringing down uh, the regimes in kind of a domino-like effect. My friend uh, Julian Gordon has given several other examples of this type of grassroots political power to bring about dramatic change in the short term. And one is the example of Coca-Cola about 20 years back, 15 years back, I don't know what it was, when they changed their uh, formula for making Coca-Cola. And immediately the public didn't like it. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, sales dropped off radically. But uh, Coca-Cola... Uh, executives defended their new uh, blend and refused to change it. So uh, people just decided, I'm not buying Coke anymore. And they went to other brands. They went to Pepsi and so on and forced the Coke executives to say, okay, (laughs) you want Coke, we're bringing Coke back. And this, I think, is the great power of the technology, where we see this this power used in a good way. It is to, um, you know, the, uh, world powers have always known sort of divide and conquer. And, and so what the technology does, it allows us to undivide you know, and to reconnect and to be able to move in concert. That's and the- that is one of the great gifts, I think, of the technology, which is a bit of a mixed gift, but that's really one of the great powers in it. Anything, anything is a mixed gift. You take a, yes. put, a do- put a dollar bill in your hand. You can use that for good or ill. Mm-hmm. It all the consciousness that has that dollar bill in your hand. This is, I think, one of the great gifts of, of a shamanic practice is if you work with the helping spirits regularly, you come to understand that that is how the spirit world understands power and that is how we need to understand all power is that it's just power and the and the issue is really in our hearts you know how are we going to choose to go from our hearts to our hands with that power what are we going to do with it and that we must get off this right wrong place and come to understand that it's it's a sense coming out of the heart and that all powers are a double-edged sword basically if it's a true power it it works both ways so there's one thing I wanted to say, though, just about this whole this community piece that we're talking about and the gathering together, um, because another part of my experience as I was trying to move a community um, of 150 people in a direction and in so doing lost half those people and where we got lost, where not where we got lost, where we lost half those people was around the simple a message that kept coming from spirit, which is if you are going to become the people who can live in this vision, you must clear your old energies. You know, you, you must do this regular daily clearing work. You must do it yourself. You must do it with each other. That, that this way of living, this understanding about a human and having a practice that allows you to, to relatively quickly but reliably clear unresolved old issues and come to a place of peace and reconciliation within yourself with your own past is absolutely required not a fixation on the past but an ability to recognize oh i just brought the past up in reality and this is how i clear it out of reality so that i can actually 
be in reality and that without that we would be doomed yes that, here that you, was so clear you touch on a very important point and I, I feel this should be in the uh, global shift uh, document uh, I, I mentioned the six uh, areas uh, but it's really one that should be up there probably should be number two after you look at the cosmology and the situation that we need and that is personal transformation uh, we are living uh, in a society, so we all have it in us to some degree, a kind of a heart-closed and, and greedy way of living. Uh, and that needs transformation. And the only way that we're going to have political power, be able to step into our power, is if we transform ourselves. We have to have a kind of death and rebirth from a way of life that is uh, fairly self-serving and earth dishonoring to one that is heart open and very honoring of the earth and that requires uh, sacrifice on our part and service, active service on our part. So speaking of that, we, we, have, a, we have about 15 minutes left here. So maybe we should um, talk for now about how do, how do we access that heart opening in ourself because without that i don't really think it matters how smart we are and how much we how hard we work without it we will simply manifest a new version of what we have and we don't have we don't have enough earth left for another one (laughs) we have to find the heart first of all many people don't know how to do that but we have to find it and then listen to it and uh, honor it and follow it protect it and so on Um, and Usually there are some things in our way to doing that. And these things we need to become aware of. They are our own problem patterns, our own uh, wounded spots, wherever we have trauma that has not been healed or dissolved. Uh, this can affect us in a way that we do not step into our power. And uh, we need people in their power. And to begin then uh, – we need to find the heart. And uh, there's a lot of ideas about what the heart is. And uh, I want to share the kind of indigenous American uh, perspective on the heart and talk about how to find that one. Because I'm not just talking about the heart chakra. I'm not talking about the pumper in the chest. They're very closely related. But uh, in the indigenous Americas, and I mean North America, including Canada, uh, uh, Central America, and South America, and I've had this confirmed now in my, tr- my travels, uh, the heart is uh, the place where the great spirit or the divine dwells. And it's present in the heart of every being, every creature. And it speaks to us through uh, physical feeling, uh, through the body, through intuition, uh, and through uh, kind of inspiring visions that come out of that physically felt uh, intuitive. And this is a source of intelligence uh, that's uh, very natural. It's like the way the root knows how to find the water source. The leaf knows how to turn towards the sun, heliotropism. It's uh, organic spiritual intelligence. And to tap that, to find it, to listen to it, you have to drop down below the skull, below uh, the central nervous system really into the the middle of the body that includes your gut but also the cardiac region and uh and we know there are neurons there that are rich in dopamine and serotonin in in the heart area and also in the gut area these are like the software of the consciousness that are the hardware of the consciousness that resides there uh so the heart is a kind of visceral instinctual and intuitive knowing system in the middle of your body and the divine is there present. So how do you listen to that and how do you open it? So let's just try this for a second. Let's just close our eyes and take a few slow deep breaths. And feel ourselves dropping down into the middle of our body, leaving the brain and the mind behind and just going down into the middle there, around the diaphragm and a little below. And then you could bring to mind maybe someone that you know who you don't feel comfortable being around. 
for whatever reason. And just pay attention there in the middle of your body to what comes. There are no words for this. It's just a physical feeling. Be with that feeling for a moment. It might be tight. It might be jumpy. It might be butterflies. You might notice a little nausea. But these are just words for what really is an instinctual bodily feeling that has no words. So just with your consciousness, focus your attention on what your body is saying. And when you have that, take another deep breath and clear it away as you exhale. And then another in-breath. And bring to mind someone it feels good to be around. And again, notice what happens there in the middle of your body. It's probably going to be very different or subtly different. Instead of jumpy or contracting or uh, butterfly, it may be like a melting, an expansion, a kind of ah. A smile may form on your face. Uh, physical feeling of comfort or, or being in harmony with yourself. But whatever that is, notice it on the physical level. That's how your body and your heart talks to you. Its way of knowing doesn't even require words. It just knows. And take another breath. And on the out breath, let go of that and go back to the first one and check it one more time. What comes in your body when you bring to mind someone that you have not felt comfortable being around? We all have some, somebody like that. So let that come. And again, check what your body feels there. Then let that go. Another breath and bring back the person it feels good to be around. Notice what you feel in your body physically. And then another breath and let that go. Then you can open your eyes. Now, I call this the little navigational system of the indigenous heart. It can simply let you know physically what you're drawn towards and what you're repelled from. And we often in this culture, modern Western culture, override this signal system. And we don't listen to it. We make decisions and maybe later say, oh, I wish I'd have listened. I had a gut feeling about it. Or in my heart, I knew it all along. You know, I, I remember uh, making a business decision. It was to, to hire a lady who had a resume that was too good to be true. And, uh, but the references were great. And it turns out that uh, uh, the references were uh, falsified and uh, uh, this person really had some ethical problems professionally. And it cost me considerably, both emotionally and financially, and had I really listened to and honored what came in my body when I was interviewing this person, I would have done a thorough investigation because there was something in my body telling me, mm, there's more here than meets the eye. And I ignored it. And I have discovered, this was many years ago, but I have discovered it usually costs me any time I override this instinctual knowing of the heart. So it tells you whether something feels right for you on an organismic level. And it tells you whether something feels wrong for you on an organismic level. And what may feel right for you may not feel right for someone else. It's a very individual thing in many cases. There is then the form of it where you are drawn towards something that feels right. Or you're repelled from something that feels not right. And then there's a a third form where you can't decide it, you know, kind of feels like both. And that's where you need to gather more information before you can decide it. That's like your body or heart is telling you, you need more counsel, you need more discussion, you need more exploring before you can make your mind up on this. 
So this is uh, essentially what uh, the indigenous people of Americas have been living by. And when uh, their heart opens, it's because it's being drawn towards something that has a feeling of rightness towards it. And they can actually create that feeling of rightness in other people by opening their own hearts. So it has a kind of reciprocity to it. And also there's a time for closing the heart. When under attack, for example. Uh, it makes no sense to take things right into your center and to take it personally. At that point you need good boundaries and uh, good skills in not taking it personally. I remember someone asking the Dalai Lama after a lecture on uh, peace what he would do if somebody pulled out a gun and started shooting at him. And he said, well, I'd run for cover, of course. I mean, it's a fundamental biological instinct to protect yourself against harm. Not only is there nothing wrong with that, it's part of wellness, part of being healthy. But to live only protectively, only with a closed heart, is to cut you off from the sources of life, from the sources of spirit, from connection with the plants and the animals, for, for connection with the, the air that you breathe and the waters that you're nourished by. So this is a very fundamental psychology that we need to bring into Western civilization. We need it terribly. So what challenge could we give people between now and next week when we continue this conversation to begin to bring the heart into their psychology? This is very simple. This is very simple. Wherever you go, whether it's a walk in the park, the woods, to the market, to the bookstore, just notice where in the middle of your body you feel drawn to something. You may find your body wanting to go down a certain aisle in the bookstore. Just notice that. Your heart is directing you there. In the woods or the park, notice where your eye lights, what seems attractive to you. And uh, move towards that. Notice also what seems unattractive or repelling for you. So that you begin to gain some skill in becoming aware of how your heart is speaking. It will guide your steps in a very solid way if you will listen to it and, and let it. And not override it with what the mind thinks you need. So that would be a good thing. And I, I think uh, if you're a homemaker and you're thinking about... Uh, some fabrics for new, making new drapes, great. Go to some fabric stores, walk around, use this little navigational system to see what colors and what textures you're drawn to, what brings you alive in your body, and what kind of, or what suppresses your body. Uh, so no matter what the space is into which you will be living next week, use this little navigational system or NGS as I call it for a navigational system to, to guide you and to uh, give you information that you need in making decisions and taking actions. So everyone, um, thank you for being with us here today and thank you McCall. We are going to pause in our conversation and come back next week to talk more about what are we really being called to do in this time. I mean, today we've talked about sort of the dynamics or the nature of this time and the fact that none of us are alone in wanting to address this time. But next week we're going to talk more about um, – the action. So as we've said here today that our own transformation really is a fundamental first step and that must be followed by action, not only in our own lives but perhaps even in the world and that a part of that action will be made ever more powerful by this potential of connecting in collectives and communities and operating um, as, as one, as a, as a larger one. Um, so that will be our topic next week. So I thank you, McCall, for joining me here this week. Yes, thank you for having me. I just love talking to you and Jerry. And those who want to reach McCall and his work, you can email him directly, especially if you have questions from today, at admin at crowsnestshamanism, all one word, dot com. Or just same, 
the website is the same, www.crowsnestshamanism.com, or you can email me at christina at lastmasscenter.org, and we would be happy to respond to your questions. Um, so I give thanks to the ancestors who have gathered round, to the earth below, the sky above, and to the heart energy that unites us all. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week.